We think women need to talk more openly about money because money really matters. It shouldn't be embarrassing or confusing. Join the conversation. We'll be discussing a whole range of topics which will help you get comfortable with your finances. Money Matters, brought to you by AJ Bell. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Money Matters podcast. I'm Danny Hewson and I'm joined as usual by the wonderful Laura Souter. Hi, Laura. Hi, Danny. And as you well know, this podcast is all about helping women to invest and to get them to make their money work harder for them, um, whether that's to save for the future, for a house, for holidays, or whatever it is you want. And in this episode, we thought that it was time to really break things down, to bust some jargon, uh, really to sort of get into the nitty gritty of exactly what you can invest in, all those different, sound the jargon alarm, asset classes, uh, because we know that jargon is really off-putting and it's that perceived lack of knowledge, a fear of asking questions, which is one of the really big barriers that prevent women from investing. And in the last episode, we heard from the wonderful Anna from Female Invest, all about investing mistakes. And it's well worth going back to listen to that if you haven't already. Um, this podcast series, we want it to be a kind of evergreen thing. And with the exception of our spring statement episode, um, all of it is timeless content. So we hope that you can go dip into it and pick the episode that's right for you at that moment. And don't forget as well, we said this last time, but please do sign up for our newsletter because you get loads of extras, including in the next one, a discount code to get money off a new book called Inspirational Investing, published by Harriman House, and it features our next guest which is Prana Kemlani's from This Girl Invests, which had a very similar mission to us, which is breaking down the barriers for women getting into investing. So I caught up with her and we went really back to basics on how to start investing and what asset classes are. So we thought it would be useful to go over some of the basics of investing and take it right back to the beginning. So we're going to be looking at asset classes and how to pick which one is right for you. So Prana, thanks a lot for joining us to help with this. No, absolutely. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. So first, I guess if we start, we're trying to bust the jargon. Can you explain in a jargon-free way what an asset class means? Yes, I would love to. That's exactly what this government invest is all about. Just getting people to realise that actually, even though there's loads of words and loads of jargon, it doesn't necessarily have to be difficult. So if we go into asset class, for example, let's take a step back and maybe just think, what is an asset? Um, an asset is generally something that you can buy that will increase in value over time. So for example, a house is an asset because you'd hope that you know the amount that you paid for it is no longer what it's worth, say 10, 20 years down the line. Um, but an asset can also be you know, a share or a bond um, and even cash. So I think maybe if we go through it, if we go through each type of asset and explain actually what it is, and also maybe touch on um, the kind of risk level. So let's start with the lowest risk as you've just mentioned it there cash that everyone will know about just explain kind of why people might have cash on what cash is I guess yeah so cash really is just the the key interchange that we use in society at the minute right back in the day it might have been you know I have a cow and you have a chicken <laughs> these days we've gone into you know into money and, and cash and as time goes by it's no longer a physical thing right we use our credit cards and 
So that is evolving. But essentially, cash is just something that we use in exchange for a product or a service that we want. Um, the only issue with that as an asset class is as costs go up and as inflation goes up, the cost of living goes up. That same pound, say 10 years ago, won't buy you the same things today. It's worth less. So you almost have to factor that in. It's a great asset class in terms of you need that in your life, right? Because you can't buy things. I can go to someone and be like, I have a share. Do you want to, you know, give me um, a flower in exchange? We don't really do that in society. So with it, we always need a little bit of cash and what we call liquidity. Um, So it's a very important asset class. But again, we need to factor in that um, it loses value over time. Yeah, and I think people think of cash as risk-free, which in a way it is. You can access it really easily and it's not going to suddenly go down in value like maybe some other asset classes. But actually, you raise a good point there of inflation, which particularly at the moment is on everyone's mind, eats into the value of, of that cash. So there is some risk involved in it, isn't there? Yeah, exactly. So even though you have money saved, say like under your bed or in a bank account, it's not growing at the amount that that the cost of living is growing. So you kind of want to make sure that you're not just keeping cash because maybe if your parents had £10, you know, five, 10 years ago, that would have bought them a lot more than what £10 will buy you today. Um, So if we move on to the next kind of step up in risk would be bonds or fixed income. So can you explain what those are? Yeah, sure. So the way I like to think about it is bonds are really just loans. So we loan money to, to companies. It's just that the reason why it's not really called a loan per se is it's tradable, i.e. I can say, oh, I no longer want to loan money to this company. Here you go. You can now loan money to this company in the exchange of, of a bond. Um, but yeah, it's deemed low risk because at the end of the day, you are saying to this company, I will give you, say, £100 you know exactly when you're going to get that £100 back, say in 2024, in two years' time, and you know exactly how much money you're going to make on it, say um, 2%. So you know at the end that you're going to end up with that amount that you put in the first place plus the 2%. So it is deemed you know, low risk, but there is a little bit of risk, and I think that's why we don't call it risk-free, in that if the company goes bust, right, then you may not get your money back. But again, the chance of that happening is very low. But just always know that it there is some risk, but it's minimal. And the income part of the bond is what's really appealing to a lot of investors, isn't it? So often it's called like a, a coupon that's paid out, which I think harks back to some very old school days. But basically, yeah. that company will pay you a little bit of money, won't they, each year or each month? Exactly, yeah. So you almost like accrue that interest and you get that money back. Um, Okay, so next up on the risk level is stocks and shares, which lots of people will immediately think of when they think of investing. Um, So just explain what that is. Yeah, sure. So stocks and shares are essentially the same thing and equity as well. You might hear, you know, the debt to equity. Bonds are normally referred as debt, right? Because to a business who's raising money, they need to give that money back to the investor. Whereas with equity, it's almost not as binding, you could say in that the company will take the money from the investor and then as and when it wants, we'll give a little thank you back in the form of a dividend. But you you as an investor don't get guaranteed that money back in the same way that you do with a bond. So if we then, now that we've acknowledged that there is a little more risk, uh, a share really is just you giving money to a business and they can then use it to grow in whatever way they want. Um, and in exchange for you giving them money, they're not promising you the money back but they are promising you a a percentage ownership in that business. 
So um, I can be a 0.0001% owner of Apple, for example, <laughs> if I just go to a broker and I end up decide to buy a share and then I can be now an owner in that business. But as an investor, I don't know when I'm going to get that money back and when I'm going to you know, get a return on that. I'm going to hope that the value of that business will go up over time and therefore my one share that I have will grow in value in the same way as property you could think of it, right? Like you're not intending to buy and sell. You're just hoping I'll buy and then eventually it will grow in value. And the one of the big appeals of, of stocks and shares is that they're so easily tradable, so which means easily easy to buy and sell and um and relatively low cost now, aren't they, to buy and sell? Yeah, exactly. These days, brokers have made it really easy just from an app for you to just say, I want to buy a share in this. And then within a few clicks, you can you can own that share within that broker account. So it really never has been easier and at quite low cost with these firms that are, you know, saying it's free. I think the only thing to, to, to note, it, it's never, nothing's free in life, right? So there's always some sort of cost. So the way they make their money sometimes is say, for example, you bought a share for £5, and then actually in the market, it's worth £10. When you go to sell it, what you'll get back is just £9 and then the company will keep £1. So you're still growing your money and it's still deemed free. But actually there is some um, fee structures that involve them making money somehow, of course. And with um, with bonds and shares, there's a certain amount of research that investors need to do, isn't it? It's not about just thinking... Oh, okay. So your example there of Apple, like, oh, that's a company everyone knows about and it's done really well. I'll just buy it. Um, what's the kind of research that people need to do before they pick these things? Yeah, good question. I think there's, at the end of the day, you want to make sure that when you're taking that risk of investing in that business, you know that they're going to be doing well, like, i.e. they're managing their business properly. Like, you know, it's not like they're they're making the money and spending all the money. So you kind of want to be looking at, A, you know, are they growing their revenue? Revenue is just how much money essentially they've made as a business income. Is that growing year on year? And therefore, do we think that that will continue growing? You want to look at the costs because of the, the cost of running that business is growing at a quicker rate than the revenue. Then that's a bad sign. You know that, well, maybe they might struggle in the long run because they might reach a day where the cost of making that sale will be greater than the amount of money they made from it. There's different pieces of analysis that you can do, which is why I wouldn't take investing in shares lightly because you need to factor in uh, a lot of different things in terms of trying to project where you think the business is going. At the end of the day, that's what you're what you're trying to do. And th- that's why they always say like, you know, historical performance is not always an indicator of future performance, right? Because, you know, maybe a typewriting company in, you know, the 1800s, 1900s would have been booming, but that doesn't mean necessarily that that typewriting company will continue booming, right? So it's almost about factoring in external things going on in the world as well. Um, great example. I like the typewriting <laughs> company example. Um, so then if we move on to the next asset class, you've talked a little bit about it already, but but property and I think lots of people tend to think of property as just kind of um, if they were going to invest in it as buying a house and and renting it out but actually it's a much bigger market than that isn't it when it comes to investing yeah and and there's a lot of appeal to property isn't there especially I don't know if you're based in London as well but in the city of London it's it's like like the thing right everyone's talking about property about buying redeveloping and 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 selling it again Um, it is a very good asset class but you take risk when buying that property in that you are essentially getting a mortgage let's say let's assume that you are borrowing in order to be able to buy that asset that borrowing is a liability right that is money you're going to have to continue paying back 
while you're still hoping that the value of your asset will go up. Um, so yeah, maybe you're taking short-term risks, but say for example, if the, pro- if the property value tanks for whatever reason, you realize it has you know something technical that you didn't know, and now you can no longer do construction on it, um, then you, you're still left with a with a loan, right? You still need to pay that money back. Um, so yeah, it is a, it is an attractive asset class in terms of you can make income of it, uh, rental income, or you can make you know a gain by selling it for more money than you bought it for, but it. It involves a lot of hard work. So just something to, to factor in. And it's probably also worth flagging. I mean, we talked about the fact that you can buy and sell stocks and shares very quickly and very cheaply. But property, obviously, anyone who's tried to sell a property will know that it's not a quick or cheap process either. No, not at all. Exactly. Um, OK, so next asset class, we're getting a little bit more niche now. But um, commodities is something that people talk about quite a bit. So can you explain what that actually means? Yeah, sure. So commodities are things that we use, let's say, like it throughout life, throughout the manufacturing of products. So it can be um, any and even like um, metals that are valuable. So you could say, you know, gold, silver, aluminium used to make cans. There's loads of different commodities. And actually, there's a whole different exchange for that in London called the London Metal Exchange. So it just works in, in a different way. And it's um, how easy is it for people to actually buy that? So say if I decided that I wanted to buy yeah. some sort of specific metal, how easy would that be? <laughs> I think that, say, for example, you can buy gold, right? There's there's vaults and, you know, that you can buy little pieces of gold. But um, these days it's even like financial um, instruments that you can buy. So you're not buying the underlying commodity, but you can say, I want to invest in, in gold and I don't want to hold the gold in my house and worry about you know where I keep it to make sure it doesn't get stolen and all that worry that comes with actually buying the physical thing you can actually invest in gold etfs for example so these are just you know etfs that the underlying value is dependent on gold so the value of gold goes up the value of the etf goes up okay and so then i think the final asset class that i can think of is alternatives which sounds quite broad and quite strange so what what might that include good question so alternatives can be anything from private equity firms or hedge funds but actually, it's not that easy to access as an in, as a as a retail investor. And maybe actually, it's worth um, describing the different types of investors, right? An individual will be deemed a retail investor, right? Because we um, access only certain kind of products that the, the the financial infrastructure allows us to buy. You know, let's think bonds and shares and and, and funds, which we'll come to in a minute. Um, but as an institutional investor, now that can be anything like insurance companies pension funds because essentially when you're giving them money right say for example when you're paying an insurer the way they make money is they take your monthly payment and they invest it they make money on that so that if ever something happens to you and they had to pay you out it would it wouldn't be as much compared to the money that they made from investing so that's one thing so they're actually quite a big institutional investor um, and pensions as well, because they collate all our different, uh, you know, monthly payments into these pension pots. And then they have a big pot that they then have to do something with. And they can't keep it in cash, as we already know, because it will lose value to inflation. But they need to think, OK, how can we um, allocate this big pot of money in in, in different asset classes? Um, so they tend to be the most popular investors in these alternative investments. So even though you think, oh, I can't invest in private equity or, or hedge funds. Um, actually, you might be indirectly through your uh, pension pot. So definitely worth checking out. 
And so now, say you've got all of this nailed, you know what asset classes are now. How do you decide which is the right one for you? How do you decide what to invest in? Yeah, this is a very personal one, and which is why these days when you come to, um, you know, using a robo-advisor, for example, they, they do almost like a risk assessment. Um, and even you should do that just by yourself because I think it's a really valuable tool and there's loads of, you know, free risk assessments online that you can um, do just to find out what risk level you're at because say for example maybe you know you don't have a lot of money but you're um, willing to take those risks then you might choose a higher risk product not that I recommend that you ideally want to have your emergency fund and then only invest money that you do not need and won't be needing for the next five years that's the general uh, recommendation but maybe you're someone who actually does have a big pot of money but needs you know a large emergency fund in order to sleep properly at night because you know it worries you in that case you wouldn't be deciding to take a higher risk investment and an active approach um, you might decide to to take lower uh, risk approaches you know such as bonds and, and maybe even um, uh, you know gold ETFs for example and so then we should probably talk about funds as well because that's how most people would invest so can you just explain um briefly what a fund is for anyone that doesn't know yeah yeah sure funds are my favorite so i know this is a little sad that i even have a favorite asset class <laughs> <But> <laughs> funds are, are great in that you don't have to make that decision yourself right you don't have to say i will you know invest in apple and i will invest in this company and that company and do all the research and the hard work that entails you know d- making those decisions but you can just decide i want to invest in a fund for example i want to invest and there's all there's all sorts so say for example you decide actually i'd i'm happy with an 80 20 percent so say i want to do 80 percent shares but i do want to have a little bit of bonds so i want 20 percent of bonds you can decide okay that kind of fund where they you just decide the asset class and the investment manager will do the hard work of deciding where that money goes um but in essentially you're doing the same thing right you're deciding your risk level there's other kind of funds for example where you can say oh do you know what i think um um, India is going to be growing massively over the next 10, 20 years. I want to invest in India. You can actually find funds that are like India specific, like country specific or a particular area of the world specific. So you could do, you know, Asia Pacific or different parts of the world. Um, but then you might say, you know, actually, I want to invest in Bitcoin, but I don't want to, you know, I don't know how to do it. And I just want to invest in a Bitcoin fund. So that's also an option. So that's what's great about funds in that essentially it's just a little box. And in that box, there's different kinds of asset classes, whether it's bonds or shares, and you are just buying a little piece of that box. So someone else is doing the worrying about what goes into the box. You're just benefiting from it, essentially. So you're saying, I'll pay you a little percentage, you know, 0.2%. Um, and I get the benefit of, of the growth over the next decade or two. And while we're on funds, we should probably talk about active versus passive. So um, they seem like quite techie terms, but actually um, they are simpler than I think a lot of people would think. But can you just explain what an active fund is and what a passive fund is? Yeah, sure. So, so far I've been talking about an individual, right, making this decision, an investment manager. That is an active fund. There's actually a human making those decisions of what goes into this box that you're buying a piece of, which is the fund. Um, however, these days with technology, robots have become really clever and can follow the markets. So say, for example, you can decide you will invest in the top 100 companies in the UK. 
um, and you're quite happy for the robot just to follow the trend of the, you know, of the top companies. So you may decide to invest in a passive FTSE 100 fund. And in that case, you're putting, you know, say one pound of every one pound that's getting distributed across 100 companies. And you're getting the benefit of that. But actually, it's not a human making the decisions of the buying and the selling. It's just a robot following the, the list of companies. And so um, the robots are cheaper, aren't they? So um, if you're paying yeah. a, a physical fund manager, you're going to be paying a higher charge for that fund. Whereas um, the reason that passive funds are very popular now is because they've got a much lower charge attached to them. Exactly. Spot on. Income can make up quite a big part of your investment gains if you're investing. So um, lo- lots of people might choose to just hold on to an asset. And why might they do that? Yeah, really good question. So actually, when you're investing, you need to sort of think, why are you investing? Do you, are you trying to make an income out of it? Or are you hoping that in the long run, it'll grow in value and you'll just sell it at that point in time? Because say, for example, you're, you're close to retiring, you actually want your investments to give you money without actually selling them. Now, each of the different asset classes have a different income stream. So with the bonds, you'd earn interest income, as we mentioned. With the shares, you'd earn the dividend income, but that's less regular. It's as and when the business, the company that you're investing in decides to do that. With the funds, actually, they collate all the different types of income and pay it out to you if you want, or you can choose to reinvest it. So you might be asked to make that decision when you're investing in funds, or you might see that at the end it says um, income fund or accumulation fund. Income is where you're deciding they'll pay you the money in your bank account. And accumulation is where you're saying, actually, hang on, I don't need this income. Put that money back into the fund, invest it for me. Um, and those are the main the main ones, as well as, of course, rental income from property, which we all know about. <laughs> Perfect. Thank you so much for explaining all of that. It was really helpful. Thank you so much for having me. Really interesting that Pruna said that funds were her favourite asset class because we do get more questions from listeners about funds than pretty much anything else. And I thought she did a really great job of explaining how they work. And I really like this little idea of, you know, a box full of goodies that you can invest in. And there are so many different things, as she said, that can go inside that box. And she also talked about passive investing. And I love the idea of a little robot working away to invest your money for you. Um, But for now, we're going to talk about active funds, which she also spoke about, and speak to a fund manager who actually does that job of piecing together a fund for you. Yes, to give her her full title, Abby Glenny is Deputy Head of Smaller Companies for investment company Aberdeen, formerly known as Standard Life. And I caught up with her to ask her how she decides what goes into their funds. So Abby, Prella was talking about a fund as being a a box that um, somebody, either a robot or a real person, then puts (laughs) a lot of nice goodies into and that people, retail investors can basically buy a little bit of the box. You're a fund manager, so you're the person that's putting the goodies in the box. How does it work? Yeah, exactly. So, you know, the type of funds that we run are very much where the, the person is putting the stuff in the box rather than a computer. You know, always everything that we do within my team is about active management. And the key for us is that we would have an investment process which sets out how we think about the type of companies that we want to invest in that we want to put in that fund box Um, and importantly you know we're very clear about the type of companies that we would like to invest in in terms of characteristics of businesses 
Um, the other thing in terms of the type of funds that are available to, to retail investors are there will be for different asset classes within that equities bucket. So, for instance, the portfolios that I run invest in what we would call uh, small or mid-sized companies. And importantly, those are all listed companies. So they will all be listed and publicly tradable on um, a stock market. You know, that differs from where some funds might be investing in private businesses um, or areas like infrastructure. Um, so really what's important for us in terms of that fund management people side of things is that we have to follow our process. And that means that that retail investor, that client buying into our fund knows what type of exposure they're going to have. Um, and then our time is spent researching the businesses that we invest in, meeting with that management team um, and making sure that we have a, a broad enough mix of companies we've invested in that fund that clients are also diversified. You know, so you're exposed within that fund to a number of different investments, a number of different companies, um, rather than it being you know, solely about a, a small handful. That's the magic word that we've used so often on this podcast, diversification. How do you go about making sure that you do cover all the bases? Mm. Yeah, so I think there's a variety. So firstly, is that we would typically hold around 55 stocks in one of our funds. Um, so what we don't want to do is we don't want to own hundreds because then we don't think you're really getting the, the benefit of like our great investment research. You know, So we want to have a balance between what we think is backing our best ideas, as well as having, you know, enough of a, a breadth of, um, of different investments. And, you know, our team have an investment process, which actually often leads us away from certain type of companies, which we think are, are riskier, um, are more driven by macro type factors. So driven by, you know, politics, driven by interest rate rises or oil price changes. Um, you know, we want to focus on companies where we think actually their their future is in more in their own destiny. You know, so they're more in charge of the outlook of that business. Um, so that's really where where we go in terms of that diversification. Um, so we find that actually the areas that we invest in are, especially in the smaller and the mid-sized businesses, um, there's a huge range of different companies that you can invest in. So we actually find that in terms of, you know, the, the sectors that um, our companies are exposed to, we get a natural diversification um, because we're able to look at such a broad range of companies all the time. And with the characteristics we like in businesses, actually, they come from a range of different sectors. So how often would you and your team look at changing what's in the box? Hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, we constantly are looking at whether we think, um, the companies we've invested in are still the best things for our clients. Um, and so we would look at that in theory on a weekly basis in terms of being on top of our businesses. But importantly, we are long-term investors. So when we're thinking about what a new investment case for a business, we're, we're thinking about you know, what is going to happen to this company over a three to five year type time horizon. Um, so that means actually typically the, the turnover is what we talk about, and that's how much you're trading in the funds. Um, typically, that is around a 20% level every year. And that kind of ties in. So 20% turnover sort of ties in with that five-year holding period. Um, so there might be companies that we actually have owned for 10 years, 
because you know that can, can that outlook for that business has continued to evolve. And similarly, there are some where you know the investment case we have either plays out quicker or actually you know where it fails to play out. You know we might sell that on a quicker time period. Um, so our job, our daily job, is sort of looking constantly, addressing if we still own the things that we think are the best fit. Um, but actually, our turnover and how often we're trading because um, we're long term is actually quite low. Because I, I guess the world moves on, doesn't it? Prenna was talking mm-hmm. about maybe a hundred years ago, you'd be looking at investing in a typewriting company, but but right now, you know, you're more likely to be investing in you know electric powerpoints for your car type mm-hmm. companies. Is it exciting? I think particularly the sort of small and mid cap names are exciting, and the portfolios I directly run are only investing in UK listed businesses. Now, although a company is UK listed it might actually have very international revenue streams. Um, but other funds in our team actually invest in global, smaller mid-cap companies. So, you know, they could be listed anywhere across the world. Um, and I think that why I really enjoy investing in small and mid-cap is that you're, you're finding this of the next generation businesses. So you're typically the newer businesses for the new, more modern industries, let's say, are often in that small and mid-cap space. Um, and why that is interesting for that, that retail customer who's buying you know, a portion of our fund is that they've got exposure to really interesting growth industries. Um, and you know, importantly, we're very conscious that we also though, look at the, the risks involved in that, because we all know if we take the sort of smallest of small businesses that you might know, you know somewhere on your local high street, you know, businesses aren't always successful. So I think where, where it could be interesting for retail clients to buy into a smaller mid-cap fund is they can get um, access to those new industries, those growth businesses. But importantly, they're already at a, a size where they sort of, they've proved themselves. Importantly, they're profitable businesses in terms of how we invest. Um, but one of my favorite parts of my job is meeting uh, management teams of businesses. You know, I think those discussions that we have and those insights are so interesting. And, you know, in one day I could meet four companies who do completely different things across different parts of the the world, even, you know, completely different sectors. Um, And one of the other things that we quite like is what we call founder run businesses. Um, You know, so where the it's often the CEO, it's not always, but the chief executive officer is often the founder of the business. Um, and yeah, we really like those type of companies because they think long term like us. So, you know, that founder is thinking about where their business is going to be in five years. They're not worried about, you know, the next quarter period too much. Um, and they're also, you know, they truly believe in their businesses. You know, it's the, it's the heart and soul of what they do. Um, and these are companies that actually lots of people know. So, for instance, one of the companies we invest in is Hotel Chocolat which I'm sure many people have um, treated themselves or are oh, yeah. friends <laughs> you know, And it's co-founded, actually, by uh, Angus Thurwell, who is the CEO. And also his co-founder is also um, still heavily involved in the business on the property side. Um, and honestly, if you we meet with Angus regularly, you know, he is a chocolatier by heart. He is so passionate about his business. And he's well about the ethics of his business and its sustainability credentials. Um, so I really, really enjoy meeting company management teams. I want to talk a bit more about risk and return and also the sort mm-hmm. of ethical thing, because I know a lot of people talk about ESG funds. But before that, let's mm-hmm. just for people that don't know, small mid cap. What are you talking about? 
Yeah. So, um, like I said, everything that we invest in is um, is listed on a stock exchange. So, for instance, if you're looking at our UK funds, they would either be listed on uh, what's called FTSE, part of FTSE, which is the London Stock Exchange, or another market which is part of that called AIM, the alternative investment market. Now, what we look at is um, basically, if you can imagine, you've got large cap as the biggest companies, you've got mid cap as the middle, and you've got small cap as the smallest. Now, when I say we invest in small cap companies, in the UK, you know, those have to be what's called a market capitalization. Um, We would be looking for things at least at sort of 150 million market cap businesses. So these are that's how much the business is worth. Exactly. Yeah. And that that value is determined every day by the share price, actually, and by the number of shares in issue and the share price. Um, So those are the there are smaller companies um, than that listed, but they become not really investable for us for a number of reasons. Um, there are some people who might invest and you could buy a fund that would maybe be called a micro cap fund, which would be even smaller than that. Um, so we're kind of looking at the next sections up. So the, the sort of um, investable size small cap companies for us. And then the mid cap is the next size up. Um, now, if you look at different geographies, um, in different markets, that definition will, will be a bit different. So companies listed, for instance, in the U.S., are typically much larger in size. So when you talk about small cap in the US, it's actually bigger in terms of that market capitalization, that size of the business. You spoke a little bit about risk, um, make, making sure that you know you're you're looking after your uh, the people that invest in the fund. Mm-hmm. How do you mitigate risk, and and also what kind of return are people getting? Mm-hmm. Um, Yeah, so I think it's important um, in terms of that risk mitigation, how we do that is through that diversification. So it's through holding enough stocks in the portfolio that um, you're not overly exposed to a certain company. Um, And because that can work great if that company goes right and the share price goes up, but, you know, it can work both ways. So typically, for instance, the biggest positions in our funds might be might represent five percent of the total value of that fund. So, um, you know, if something really bad happened to your biggest holding, that's your exposure is only five percent of the fund. Um, similarly, that does limit you on the upside. If something great happens to that company, you know, it's still only five percent of that fund. But you know, that's important for us in terms of um, how we look after clients' money in terms of those risk dynamics. And um, now, different funds out there will have different um, different maximum limits, um, so that can change a bit. Um, so yeah, and the way that we look at that as well is, um, I mean, we have a number of risk tools, so. Um, pieces of software which help us manage the funds to understand those risk exposures that we have. Um, But like I said, it comes as well from very much the human element of being a fund manager, which is understanding what about each company you've invested in, you know, which things are going to drive that investment case. What are you exposed to? So, for instance, are you exposed to consumer disposable income? You know, are you exposed to um, the growth of software. Are you exposed to um, one thing we talk about at the moment a lot is content is king. So you know, a real growth theme at the moment is that everyone wants to own and monetize great content. Um, so we're always thinking about the end exposures of our companies, um, and that they are different enough from each other. 
Um, so we've got a balance in the portfolio. Um, what was the other part, sorry, that you asked The, the return, what sort of oh, return yeah. do people get? Yeah, so I mean, we very much would talk to people about looking at our, um, a long-term return. So, you know, where it can be risky, I think, for, you know, a retail client is if they are trying to invest in a fund or in markets in a very short-term time horizon, because then it very much depends on your market timing. Um, it, and they, that becomes more risky. Um, but I think it's the stock market is great for people who can, um, you want a return over a long period of time, you know, they have a longer um, a lifeline to invest in. Um, so what funds are typically, um, most funds uh, in the equity space would have a return objective that is measured versus the market. You know, so what we are trying to do is we are trying to outperform the market, if that makes sense. And that is the return we're trying to generate. Um, yeah. So, for instance, you know, many funds might have a, a lower risk fund might have a plus 1% um, return target. So 1% return per annum above whatever its benchmark of the market is, is achieving. Um, a higher risk fund would maybe have a sort of 3%-ish target. Um, so, but the, the absolute return to any um, holder of the fund obviously is also determined by whatever the stock market does in that period. And that's why we say, look, be long term in terms of your time horizon. Um, so that because then if you can, um, if you invest in a fund, which is um, a strong performer of the long term, you can take away some of that market risk by being a long term holder. Obviously, this is a podcast talking about uh, gender, specifically helping women invest. How important is it to have women like you in these kind of positions? Yeah, I think it's interesting because I'm actually really lucky that I've always worked with a large number of women. So our team internally is actually more females than males. You know, our team of fund managers and analysts, we're, we're female dominated, um, which is quite unusual. But definitely, you know, I started working in 2007 and I think I've seen, you know, a huge amount of um, of progress there in terms of the, the balance Um I think it is important because I think that there's a perception, which is often wrong. Um, so I think there's a perception about lots of areas of the investment um, practice that, um, you know, I think where, where we try and do a lot of work, for instance, as a company is at that graduate level, speaking to students, whether it be at school level or at university level. Um, and we do more as well in terms of like internships and actually sort of like apprenticeships. Um, as well and I think it is important for people to to sort of see people who sound and look like them um, in positions that that they um, they think might be of interest to them um, and I've done a lot of work over the years about talking about um, what this job is actually like you know what do I do on a day and why do I think um, you know people will be good at it what skills do I think you need to possess and I always think it's quite interesting because there's other um, professions which seem to attract a lot of women. So law is, of, is often one where, you know, I see a huge amount of, of females in the law industry. And when I think about a lot of the, the skill set for that, I don't think it's that dissimilar to working in lots of areas of sort of finance or investment. Um, and particularly the sort of job I do, um, you definitely have to be numerical in a way, but you have to have 
people interaction skills. You have to, um, you know, we're, we're talking to management teams and we're challenging them um, in terms of the outlook for their business and how we think they should be uh, sort of facing challenges or adapting the business. Um, and I think, yeah, it's absolutely, I think, I think anyone can really fit in this industry and, you know, that's not just a, a male, female. And I think one of the things that we see more is people from all different backgrounds in terms of particularly like what they might have studied um, at university. Um, and I think that's really important in terms of how um, debates in your team happen. So when we're discussing whether we think a company is a good thing to put in the fund or is not a good fit, I think by having you know, different types of people with different backgrounds and different insights and whose thought process is different actually creates like that really good peer debate. Abby, it's been lovely to talk to you. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Some really inspiring stuff there from Abby. I really like how enthusiastic she was about her job, how passionate. And she was really keen to break things down into simple terms. And I think that was quite a breath of fresh air, really. Yeah, I think it is. And I think um, jargon is something that just really irritates me in the industry because I think it overcomplicates things and it just doesn't need to be that complicated. All of these things can be broken down into really simple terms, um, easy to explain things. And it's, and it's not that tricky. But sometimes I think the industry quite likes to use jargon to make it all seem a bit more complicated than it is. I've been guilty of using it as well. I know I caught myself when I first started, I, I sort of felt that I had to use the jargon to, you know, demonstrate that I knew what I was talking about. But honestly, I think if you do know what you're talking about, just like Abby did, you can break it down into such simple terms that everyone can then understand. Yeah, and I think hopefully when people talk to friends and colleagues about investing, if they're starting to have more of those chats about money, uh, I'm hoping that some of that jargon might fall by the wayside as people just explain things to each other and people chat more openly about money. Um, but it's also interesting, I think one of the big barriers we talk about, there being lots of different barriers to women investing, and, and one of those is a lack of disposable income, just simply women have a bit less money each month to put away than their male counterparts. So we're going to be tackling that in the one of the next episodes. Yeah, because inflation, as you say at the moment, is really taking a massive bite out of everyone's paychecks. And I know certainly some of my friends have been trying to psych themselves up to ask for a pay rise. We know there's all kinds of pay disputes going on at the moment. And you really do need a sort of set of tools when you're asking for a pay rise, something that can really boost your confidence. So um, in our next episode, we're going to do just that. We're going to dig into how to ask for a pay rise because we do know that, you know, the, though the gender pay gap is getting smaller, it is still there. And of course, it does work. It's black magic on that gender investment gap that we talk so much about. If you have any questions on that topic and you want us to put them to the experts that we're going to speak to, or if you have any questions on any other topics, then you can get in touch. Um, we're at moneymatters at hobell.co.uk, or you can find us on Instagram at hobellmoneymatters. Um, also, you can sign up to our newsletter. So Danny mentioned earlier about a discount that we managed to wangle for you guys. So if you sign up before the 17th of May to the newsletter, you'll get 30% off that book we talked about earlier. Um, so you just need to go to the AJ Bell Money Matters homepage and you can sign up to the newsletter there. And one final shout out for our guests today. 
Um, you can find all about Prerna and This Girl Invest over on Instagram, or you can go to thisgirlinvest.co.uk. And we really do like to hear from you. So please get in touch with any feedback or, as Laura says, any questions. But now, though, that is all for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks a lot. Before you go, please remember this podcast is for educational purposes and the views expressed don't necessarily reflect those of AJ Bell. The podcast isn't telling you whether certain investments are suitable or not. And don't forget that the value of investments can change and you can lose money as well as make it. It's also important to remember that tax rules apply and that the way an investment performed in the past may not be the same as how it behaves in the future. If you want help, go see a qualified financial advisor.